and welcome back to Sparks. On our previous episode, the Sparks gang discussed David Barron's book, American Eclipse, in advance of the eclipse that's coming to the U.S. later this month. And now in this episode of Sparks, 538's Christy Eschwanden talked to Barron about the eclipse chasers of the 19th century, including Thomas Edison, and what to expect from the eclipse that's happening soon here in the U.S. Have a listen. David, welcome to Sparks. Hey, thanks, Christy. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. So your book is about an eclipse that happened in the U.S. 139 years ago, and I'm really eager to discuss the book, but I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about how you came to be interested in this topic. You know, I happened to be in the audience in Boston this February when you did a story collider talk about how you became an eclipse chaser, and I'm pretty sure everyone else who was present there came away thinking, oh my God, I have to see this year's eclipse. So tell me a little bit more about how, how you got interested in this. Yeah, for me, I mean, my first total solar eclipse was truly a life-changing experience, and it just came out of the blue. I mean, I, I, I knew I was going to see the eclipse. I went specifically to Aruba in 1998 to see the eclipse, but I had no idea that it was going to be such an emotionally moving and, I dare say, spiritual experience. So, you know, I've been a science writer for 30 years plus, I approach the world from a scientific perspective, but the total eclipse just tapped into something really primal and visceral and just made me feel connected to the universe like absolutely nothing else. Wow, that that just sounds amazing to me. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say that, yeah, well, I'm in the 90% totality range. You know, I'm not going to you know, have to drive a few hours to get to that full total eclipse. But from what you're saying, it sounds like the total eclipse is fundamentally different, right? Like what makes it so? A- absolutely. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up because it's a common misconception and it's a perfectly understandable one, right? You would think that, you know, like I, where I live in, in Boulder, Colorado, it's going to be a 94% partial eclipse. And so I've talked to neighbors who are saying, well, it's going to be 94% here. Why should I battle epic traffic to drive up to Wyoming and pay $500 a night for a hotel room in the path of the total eclipse? Well, there's a very good reason. Even a 95%, a 99% partial eclipse is absolutely nothing compared with the awe-inspiring sight of totality. And I will, I actually can quantify that because a total solar eclipse uh, actually reduces daylight by a factor of a million. Well, a 99% partial eclipse where 99% of the sun's surface is covered drops daylight by 99%. So a fact, so that drops it by a factor of 100. The difference between a 99% partial eclipse and a total eclipse is a factor of 10,000 in terms of brightness. And what will you see when you actually have daylight drop by a factor of, of a million from normal daylight? You'll see a sky like none you have ever seen before. You know, it, the other, I guess, misconception, and it's one that I had before I saw my first total eclipse, is, well, What's the big deal? It gets dark. It gets dark at night, right? I know what it looks like when it gets dark. Well, it's no, it's not like the night sky either. It's a sky you've never seen. It's a it's a bizarre sky that looks like it's come from some sci-fi movie or that you literally have been transported to another planet. The colors are different. You have uh, you know, a a purple-gray twilight overhead while you've got an orange sunset all around you, 360 degrees. 
you'll have bright stars and planets come out, and then you'll see the solar corona, which again, you can only see in the path of the total eclipse, which is the most glorious thing you've ever seen in the sky. It is, it's like this wreath that's been woven from silk, and it just shimmers out in space. It's completely transfixing. And you just you just rub your eyes and you think, what the hell am I looking at? <laughs> <laughs> My dad is an amateur astronomer, and he has been talking about this eclipse for years, probably five or more years. We've been making plans. He's had hotel reservations for, for years. But after reading your book, I've just, I mean, I've, I've been having dreams about it. Yeah, this this really, I guess I, I've sort of come down with eclipse fever, although I guess I should say uh, maybe I'm an umbrophile, right? That's the correct term exactly. for it. Yeah, and, and yeah. well, so you're dreaming about it before you've ever seen one. I dream about it years after I saw my first one. I mean, I, I know I sound a little bit like a crazy person, and that's why I have to keep coming back to, you know, I was a physics major in college. I've reported on science. I see the world through a scientific lens. But this really taps into a part of the brain that I think that religion taps into. I don't see it as a religious experience personally, but I sure it sure feels like a religious experience. And and I, I you know, it's been 19 years since I saw my first total eclipse, and I would say several times a day the image of what I saw in the sky just comes before me and it gives me a sort of sense wow. of peace because it reminds me of my place in the universe. And a lot of people I've talked to who have seen total eclipses, and certainly those who get hooked, say the exact same thing. Oh, that's so fascinating. It's really it's really fascinating to think about that. And it makes me wonder, you know, we're sort of at a special moment here, politically so divided, and there's, you know, a lot of fighting underway about priorities and science and whatnot. I mean, do you think that this is an opportunity for people to sort of come together under a shared experience? Absolutely. I, I really do believe that. And I've been saying that, in fact, in a number of my talks, that for a couple of reasons. One is, that, uh, you know, this is a shared experience that is completely apolitical. At least I can't think of a way to politicize it. And it's just a chance to be reminded, all of us, in red states and blue states and whoever we are, that we are just, our, it reminds us of our common humanity and that we are mere specks on a piece of rock that's floating in an enormous void in space. And um, so I think it's got to bring us together in that way. But also, awe-inspiring experiences, there actually is interesting research into this uh, uh, that psychologists have been doing about what awe does to the brain. And it's a really powerful emotion that most of us are deprived of today. But that awe, the experience of awe, standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon or seeing a total solar eclipse, it it make it kind of it suppresses the ego and makes us all think more collectively it it promotes empathy and generosity and i think to have literally millions of americans of different backgrounds having this shared experience of awe will help restore some of our ties just as human beings it's not going to solve our political problems in washington i'm not claiming that but i think it may restore it may restore a little bit of civility, and that, that is exactly what we need. 
That sounds great. And it, it does feel like something that, you know, people can really come together. Um, yeah, we had this annular eclipse here a few years ago in the U.S., and um, my dad was was part of this this group in Albuquerque that had a sort of a group viewing of that, and he said, you know, for this short little while, everyone had stopped what they were doing and they're looking up at the sky, and you know, we so rarely do that these days. You know, it's common to look around and see everyone looking down into their phones, but you know, it's sort of a way to make everyone stop and and look at the world around us. Yeah, Sounds- and and that was the same in 1878. <laughs> That the, the world mm-hmm. stopped for a day on July 29th, 1878, at least in the United States, and people set aside their, their normal worries and, and affairs of making money and just kind of basked in this, in this curiosity and excitement about the universe. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get to your wonderful book. It, it basically follows these three storylines that are centered around three people, James Craig Watson, Mariah Mitchell, and Thomas Edison. I'm curious to know a little bit more about how you selected these three. And maybe we should even back up a moment and, and ask, I should ask, how did you just select this particular eclipse? Well, so yeah, this book is 19 years <laughs> in the making. So I actually... Wow. So it really did start with that first e- eclipse that you saw. Absolutely. 1998, February 26, mm-hmm. 1998, when I was in Aruba, saw my first total eclipse and was completely bowled over by it. Again, it was it was an emotional experience for me. But, but as a science writer, I thought, my goodness, I want to write a book about eclipse chasing. But as soon as I started learning about what was going on with eclipses, I realized that I should wait a little while to come out with the book because Americans weren't going to care about total eclipses until the summer of 2017. So I put the project on hold for a while, and I thought, well, in the summer of 2017, I'm going to come out with that eclipse book. But I had no idea what it was going to be. So about seven, eight years ago, I thought, if I'm serious about that book, I better start start determining what I'm going to write. And it didn't take very long for me to discover – that the best eclipse stories don't come from today. They're from the 19th century, because that was a time when total solar eclipses were not just marvelous natural spectacles, but they were really important to science, because astronomers were just starting to unravel the mysteries of the sun. What is it made of? What fuels it? And there were certain studies they could do only during a total solar eclipse, which occurs on average, once every 18 months, somewhere on the planet, usually someplace very hard to get to, lasts all of two or three minutes. And so so astronomers were putting together these extensive expeditions off to India or Africa to do their studies, hope that clouds didn't show up. And, and so I started to look at these various eclipses to see, well, is there one of these eclipses that stands out? And so I looked at the one in 1868 that went over India and Siam. Uh, And there was one in 1870 that went over the Mediterranean. But when I came to 1878, when I found out that in 1878, a total solar eclipse crossed the American West, I mean, the, the Wild West, this was the American West still being settled and attracted such attention from American scientists and came at a time when America was just trying to prove itself as a scientific power. I thought, I thought this has got to be it. And and then I started to look into who came out to the West uh, to observe the eclipse. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So let's start with James Craig Watson. And it's interesting um, that he was in this book. We just did recently for another episode of Sparks, um, Tom Levinson's wonderful book, uh, The Hunt for Vulcan, which also involves... Oh, it is a wonderful book. Yeah. And Tom yeah. is a friend. Yes. It's, yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. It's fa- a fantastic story. And But it's interesting. You're, you're, you sort of are looking at it from a different angle and the two books are, are very different. But tell me a little bit about, about Watson and, and why he was so interested in the eclipse. Right. So, uh, so James Craig Watson was the professor of astronomy at the University of Michigan and a very prominent man in his day because he was, uh, he was in fact known as a planet hunter because he was very good at finding asteroids. And back then, asteroids were considered planets. They were called minor planets, but they got names just like the major planets. And finding them was a very big deal. And James Craig Watson had a knack for searching the heavens and being able to identify among a sea of stars something that was out of place and actually was moving extraordinarily slowly across the sky, which was an asteroid. So uh, James Craig Watson, as a planet hunter, was uh, he came west to Wyoming in 1878 looking for a planet. And that planet, as you say, you know, based as you and your your listeners who've read Tom Levinson's book uh, know, was this hypothetical planet Vulcan, which there was good reason to believe existed between Mercury and the Sun, even though no one had ever reliably seen it. And uh, James Craig Watson figured that about the only time you could get a really good view of Vulcan would be during a total solar eclipse when the moon covered the bright surface of the sun and you could look at right around the right near the sun in the sky and spot a planet and he not only had presumably the skill to find it he had the ego to be convinced that he would find it and so he's a, i have to say of the main characters in my book he's the one i like the least as a human being he was kind of a jerk he did not treat his wife very well that's for sure but he was a fascinating man, and uh, and so uh, he was definitely one of the people I knew I had to focus on in, in telling the story in my book. Oh, absolutely. He's such a great character, and, you know, not a likable one, as you said, but, you know, it's so fascinating to me, too. And then he actually, you know, he becomes convinced during this eclipse that he is, has seen Vulcan, which, of course, he didn't because, you know, as Einstein would, would help us understand with his theory of general re- relativity, Vulcan doesn't exist. But it's just so interesting to see how someone, you know, can be so convinced that, that they're right about something. Exactly. And I think that's that's where his ego comes in. It was his that was his downfall. There's no question the man was a, I mean he was a very smart uh, he he was a he was a child prodigy. He was hired on the faculty at um, at the University of Michigan at a very young age. He was a very accomplished man, but I do think his downfall was his ego. Both in terms of can you know he was so sure that he would find Vulcan that he convinced himself that he did find it. Now we're all prone to mistakes, and science is filled with mistakes. But the whole idea of science is things need to be reproducible. And uh, when it turned out that no one else during the eclipse had seen the same object, in fact, objects, because he saw two things he thought were planets during the eclipse, and then when further analysis suggested that it sure looked like those two objects he found uh, were may well have been two prominent stars in the constellation cancer, he could not accept that there was any chance that he was wrong. And he he quite literally 
worked himself to death two years later with this crazy scheme that he was going to use to find Vulcan and prove himself right even without the benefit of an eclipse. And so it is kind of a morality tale about the need for humility in all affairs, but particularly in science. Yeah, absolutely. And I I sometimes think that one of the most difficult things about science is, you know, this constant need to be questioning yourself and asking, you know, how, not just am I wrong, but how could I be wrong? And, you know, what are the things that I'm missing? What are my blind spots? And probably the more successful you become, the harder it is to do that, because as your confidence (laughs) rises, so does, you know, your ability to, to spot those blind spots, right? Well, and also, you know, when after the eclipse, he was, you know, the headlines were all about James Craig Watson. He was being hailed as an American hero. He had, you know, this was not only a great accomplishment for him as an individual, but he brought tremendous pride to the United States, this country that really didn't have much of a a reputation in science. Here had found Vulcan, which in fact had been predicted to exist by a great French astronomer. And here an American had found it. So I think he felt a little boxed in, too. It was hard for him to to acknowledge that he could be wrong. And, I mean, it's interesting to speculate, had he not died so young, at what point would he or would he have ever accepted that, in fact, he was wrong? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I wanted to ask a little bit, this sort of competition between different countries that you just alluded to a moment ago, I mean, there was this sense that all of these Europeans were thinking of coming over, and this was something that science, you know, as a field was very interested in. Um, and yet these American scientists were really struggling. They were asking the government for funding, and, and it really took a lot of convincing for them to finally get, you know, it was a pretty paltry sum, right? And and it seems to me, if I'm interpreting what you've said correctly, that it really allowed lot of what sort of eventually convinced those politicians was not sort of the greatness of science and the importance of, of, you know, understanding about our universe, but like, oh my God, we don't want, you know, the the French or some Europeans to beat us at this, right? Absolutely. And we didn't want to look like fools on the global stage. I mean, that I actually, in my book, I do quote a letter from the head of the U.S. Naval Observatory who, who uh, appealed to Congress to to come up with the with the grand sum of eight thousand dollars, which of course was more back then than it is today, but it still wasn't a lot of money back then. Uh, but he asked for eight thousand dollars to fund a half dozen expeditions to the west for the eclipse, uh, and he was making the point that you know that if the European nations were you know when they there were eclipses in their part of the world were doing their part to advance civilization and our understanding of of nature by doing conducting their own eclipse expedition expeditions it would be in essence an embarrassment on the global stage if we ignored an eclipse in our own backyard and then congress uh, promptly declined to fund it <laughs> and right. only after the newspapers stepped in and started chiding congress for being so short-sighted did uh, did Congress come up with the $8,000? Yeah, and kind of at the last minute, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So they didn't talk- have much time to put the expeditions together. Right. They had sort of like decided to kind of press ahead with, with you know, with the idea that they weren't going to get the money and then it came through. But but I want to note here that not everyone was able to get some of this funding. And here I want to talk about Mariah Mitchell. She's someone who just seemed like such a great mentor to people here. Maybe maybe we'll just take a step back here. Tell me a little bit about Mariah and how did you find out about her? Well, so uh, so Mariah Mitchell was the most well-known 
female scientist in America in the 19th century. Uh, although, of course, she is not by, she is far from a household name today. And I have to say, before I started work on the book, I had heard her name, but I couldn't have told you anything about her. So she she rose to prominence in 1847 when she was actually, professionally, she was a librarian on the island of Nantucket, but she studied the stars at night. Uh, her father had been an amateur astronomer, and she became an avid amateur astronomer, and she discovered a comet um, in 1847. And for that, she was the first person to see it uh, anywhere. And she received a gold medal from the King of Denmark. And that became known as uh, Miss Mitchell's Comet. And she became quite prominent. And she actually ended up getting a, a paying job as an astronomer. She was in a computer. Her job was to, to compute the orbit of Venus for the uh, Navy's nautical almanac, which was used by navigators. And then when Vassar College was founded in the 1860s, she was hired as a professor of astronomy. And she was understandably not just a scientist, she was a staunch advocate for women in science and uh, women's higher education at a time when obviously it was exceedingly hard for women to get anywhere in the sciences and and. Uh, women's higher education itself was uh, was actually something that was just barely getting off the ground. So, so but when I learned what she did in 1878, I just immediately knew she would have to be another main character in my book because here it is, 1878, a time when travel to the American West was not easy, when the West was still wild, uh, when women uh, were not treated equally by any stretch of the imagination, and she took it upon herself to put together an all-female eclipse expedition to Denver without any help from the U.S. government, in essence, to, to show the American public that women should be taken seriously as scientists. Yeah, I kind of think of her as someone who wasn't willing to take no for an answer, right? Like, it, she was just like, you're not going to help me. That's, that's not going to stop me. And it was sort of seemed significant to me, too, that she really, you know, was part of this movement to really push forward the science, whether or not they were, you know, she was getting any support from the government, getting support from her college. I mean, she did have this appointment at Vassar. She was paid less than men, right? Um, although it's notable, you, you, you do talk about how she had beaten out some fairly prominent other male astronomers for the job. So, you know, she did have a measure of respect, right? She did, and and she and as I point out, there were prominent scientists who who kind of mentored her. One of them was Joseph Henry, who was the the first secretary of the Smithsonian, a prominent physicist, and really a very important man in establishing the kind of scientific infrastructure for America. And he he clearly liked Mariah Mitchell very much. I actually mention at one point in the book that. When the National Academy of Sciences was meeting at the Smithsonian in Washington, and the National Academy of Sciences was all male at the time, and Mariah Mitchell was not there, her portrait was up on the wall. And although I, I don't know who put it there, it must have been Joseph Henry. I mean, it was his building, and he liked her. But even he, you could tell he was still reluctant to be too out there in promoting women as equal to men. When Mariah Mitchell requested the use of a room at the Smithsonian for uh, her uh, the leaders of this woman's Congress that she was part of. Joseph Henry said, you can use a room, but please don't tell the media. <laughs> and uh, so I think it's 
so she did get, she certainly got respect from a number of male scientists, but I don't know that they, I think they saw her as kind of one-off, that she was remarkable, but that didn't mean that women in general should be treated as equals. But but Mariah Mitchell, you know, as you say, she she just forged ahead. She just did what she thought was right. I don't think she cared that much what other people thought. Yeah, and she really created, you know, a situation and environment for other women to flourish too and to have opportunities that they weren't getting otherwise, which which seems remarkable. Um, yeah, but it's worth noting, right? You know, we're more than 100 years later and, you know, sexism is still a problem in astronomy and it's, you know, we've come so far and yet we haven't. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And as you said, you know, she was not getting, she was being paid half the salary of the, the male faculty at an all-women's school. And she, you know, she fought against it and had some success. But it's this, it's the exact same issues today as 139 years ago. I like to think, and I think it's pretty obvious that we have come a long way. But the issues are the same issues. Yeah, no, I, I don't think anyone would argue that, that a lot has not, you know, a lot has clearly changed since then. And yet the core issues sort of still remain. Let's talk about Thomas Edison here. I think that probably most of our listeners have heard of Thomas Edison, but maybe not in this context, right? And maybe people haven't heard about his tessimeter. Is that how you say it? Yes, the tessimeter, right. So Tessimeter, yeah. yes. And Let's talk so about the tessimeter. <laughs> Thomas Edison. So so getting back to the question you asked some time ago, uh, how did I decide which characters to focus on and how did this all come about? I have to say it all started with Thomas Edison. So when I when I learned about the 1878 eclipse that crossed the Wild West and its importance to the United States, and then I learned that Thomas Edison was in Wyoming for it, that just, that just clinched it for me. I thought, well, there's got to be a book in this. And the more I looked into it, I just... It's such a fascinating time in the life of one of the most fascinating people in United, in U.S. history. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. So let's talk about the eclipse itself. And here I'm talking about the the one in 1878. You know, your your book, the storylines kind of all come together into this, you know, great climax where the eclipse happens. Of these three people, do you think that they all had successful eclipses, unsuccessful? How how would you sort of rate their experiences? Boy, that's a good question. Well, so I guess you'd have to look at what happened on the, how it looked on that very day and how it looks from 139 years later. So um, right, because you'd get a much different different answer. Right, yeah, exactly. So because yeah. I think it's pretty clear that if one were to look at it. From the you know the afternoon of July 29th, 1878, after the eclipse is over, the clear winner was James Craig Watson, because he had because he had made a concrete discovery, one that people were anticipating, and was a really big deal, which was to find the planet Vulcan. So in hindsight, that that was a big big mistake he made, but at the time it looked like great success. Edison right after the eclipse. It's interesting because I would say he was seen to be pretty successful, but in the end he was successful but for not the reason not for the reasons people thought at the time. So so the he, what he was trying to show of course was his the value of his tesimeter and his tesimeter worked in a sense. It found heat in the sun's corona. Uh honestly the result it gave was not very easy to interpret because Edison had the device 
set to too sensitively and basically as soon as he pointed it at the solar corona the needle flew off the scale so he found heat but he had no way to say how much heat he found so so in fact the newspapers were a little confused about whether he was successful or not and he kind of was both but the but the tesimeter itself looked like it had a great future and right after the eclipse edison came up with this idea of using it to to att- attaching it to a telescope at night and using it to scan the heavens for stars that were too dim to see but could be detected by the heat they gave off, which effectively is infrared astronomy. So he had this idea for infrared astronomy. Now, the tesimeter itself was not a very useful device. It turned out quite soon after the eclipse when other people tried to use it that it it was a very clunky device. It did not give reproducible results. It, it would respond to heat very quickly, but wouldn't. But then, when the heat was taken away, the needle wouldn't go back very fast. So, other devices came along better. So, the tesimeter was, you know, is clearly not a great success. Right, and it's kind of interesting to me because, in a way, it, it's sort of like he succeeded. You know, this whole thing of him wanting to be a scientist rather than an inventor. I mean, here's an example of like the scientific concepts behind what he was trying to do were really correct, right? And like that part worked, but the device, you know, the invention itself was was sort of cruddy and, and didn't work so well. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point, and I, I can't say, and I don't believe, in fact, that Edison's pronouncement about the use of the tesimeter had anything to do with the development later of infrared astronomy, but he was ahead of his time. He really was. So, but getting back to who was successful, so, but in the end, I, who, the success, the long-term success that Edison had from his eclipse expedition was not the tesimeter. It was not his detection of heat in the solar corona. It was the light bulb. Now, as I point out in my book, there's this legend in Wyoming that Edison invented the light bulb in Wyoming, that he had this flash of inspiration, and that is not true. But had Edison not gone to Wyoming for the eclipse in 1878, I think it is quite likely that he would not have been the one to come up with the first successful incandescent electric lamp. There were key things that he learned that summer. The people he was traveling with, the other scientists, uh, while he was traveling out west and and in Wyoming, were talking to him about electric lighting and power and encouraging him to take that up as his new challenge, which obviously he did. Also, not to be discounted, is uh, the the great skill that Edison developed in manipulating the media, which is what he did all summer, leading up to the eclipse, promoting the tesimeter even before he had ever built the first one as this great new successful invention, he had the newspapers wrapped around his little finger. And that was actually a really important business skill that was critical to his success with the light bulb because as soon as he got back from Wyoming and he thought he had solved the problem of electric lighting and he announced it to the newspapers, he raised all this money to actually start creating the device. It took him more than a year to actually figure out how to do it. And during that time, he had to keep the newspapers on his side and keep the investors on his side while he actually figured it out. And those were skills, again, that he really helped uh, hone to perfection in the summer of 1878. So in that way, the eclipse was really important. Now, Mariah Mitchell, I think, is just in some ways maybe the opposite in that it's hard to say that right at the time, I mean, she was successful in that 
She didn't make any important scientific discoveries, and neither did most of the male scientists who were out there. I mean, she studied the solar corona. She looked for Vulcan. She didn't make any great discoveries, but she got a lot of positive attention for her all-female expedition, which is what she wanted. Now, the doors of science did not suddenly get flung open to women. And in fact, in the years after the eclipse, Mariah Mitchell, she wrote in her diary about kind of how disappointed she was that things had not moved along more than she had, So than they had. So she may have felt that her eclipse expedition had not done much. But when you look at her influence over the decades and generations later, the, 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 the students that she taught who went on then to become professors of astronomy themselves or to become working astronomers, the, just the fact that Mariah Mitchell's life, you know, be, for quite a while, she, even into the 20th century, she was very well known and was an inspiration for girls who wanted to go on in the sciences. So I don't know about the Eclipse expedition itself, but Mariah Mitchell and the things she did and the life she led very much influenced the path that American science took in the decades after the eclipse. Absolutely. And it seems to me that, I mean, she did she did some really great work, but probably her most lasting legacy was all of those women that she mentored and, and you know, the way that she opened up the doors for other women to enter this. Yeah. And I think it's so, and actually just on that point, I think it gets, it sort of comes down to one's definition of success. And I think Mariah Mitchell defined success quite differently from the way James Craig Watson and Thomas Edison defined success. They came to Wyoming seeking personal aggrandizement. Right. Uh, that's not what she's kind of the after. opposite of her, right? Yeah. Absolutely, no. She was, you know, she was. She saw her role as paving the way for the future, and she did that. She really did that. So. She was not looking for personal fame. In fact, she was quite embarrassed when she got too much attention for herself. But she was willing to endure it if it helped the larger goal, which was making life easier for young women and girls who would come along after her. Yeah, right. I wanted to ask about one other group that you talk about in the book, and that is sort of the, the group that went up. Um, I'm talking here about old probabilities. This guy, uh, this was his nickname, Cleveland Abby, is it Abby or Abe? Abby, yep, Abby. Abby, yeah. So he was trying to predict the weather. And so he was with a group that, that actually went up on Pikes Peak, which, you know, I've climbed that mountain. It's it's quite a haul. They brought their, their equipment up there. And then he got sick and had to be dragged down. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that, that they wanted to go up on Pikes Peak. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit and why being on a high point might be interesting during an eclipse. Yeah, so Cleveland Abbey is sort of uh, an important secondary um, uh, character in my book, and I, I, his experience on Pikes Peak is probably the most dramatic tale of all of them because, as you say, he, you know, here he climbed up over fourteen thousand feet, was enduring snowstorms in July, and truly life-threatening altitude sickness, uh, spending a week up there uh, to observe the eclipse. And there were several reasons they wanted to be up there. I mean. Part of it was just to see the one getting back to the question of the solar corona, which, again, today we know is the sun's outer atmosphere. It was such a puzzlement back then. I mean, there were various theories that 
Uh, in fact, there was one theory that the solar corona was not part of the sun. It actually was the moon's atmosphere that you would only see when it was backlit by the sun during a total eclipse. There were other theories that maybe it didn't really exist at all. It was just some kind of optical illusion that had to do with the, the way light was being bent through the Earth's atmosphere. So by going up Pike's Peak and looking through less atmosphere, one thing that Cleveland Abbey wanted to see was whether the solar corona looked different at altitude and maybe would help solve this problem of at least to what extent it's a result of the way light behaves in our atmosphere. Another one of the scientists up there, Samuel Langley, was particularly interested. He was in, in, interested in uh, studying solar radiation and had a background in wanting to set up some high-altitude observatories. And this is something I don't actually get into in the book. But he, and even after 1878, he continued to climb mountains to see what benefit there would be from doing astronomy at a higher elevation. But one of the things that I find most interesting about seeing the eclipse from up there, which in fact is, has influenced my eclipse plans for August 21st of this year, is by being up so high, they were able not only to get just a stunning view of the solar corona through the thin atmosphere, but they could look out and down and see the moon's shadow as this, as this thing, as this curtain of black that they could they could see in the distance coming down from outer space into the the earth's atmosphere racing toward them at 2000 miles an hour swallowing everything up in its path and when it passed over pike's peak and headed out over the plains of colorado they could see this this giant ov dark oval <laughs> passing across the plains and uh it just is such... I've seen five total solar eclipses. I've never seen that. And so on August 21st of this year, I'm going to be in Jackson, Wyoming, up on a mountaintop because that's the view I want to have. I want to see the moon's shadow um, just as clearly as they did on Pikes Peak. Wow, that sounds amazing. That sounds really amazing. I'm going to be up in Casper, um, not that far from Jackson watching it's it's in the path of totality um, but you, I think you've convinced me maybe I should find a higher spot instead of out, out on the, the lowlands <laughs> well although also I've talked to people who've been out uh, like in Montana during the, the eclipse back in 1979 or folks out at sea who've seen total eclipses if you're on a very flat uh, plain as a lot of Wyoming is you can also get a very good view of the moon's shadow as this shaft of darkness. Of course, you have to get up on a mountain to look down and see the big oval going across the land. But I would think from Casper, if the skies are nice and clear, you could still see the moon's shadow uh, coming in from the west very well. Yeah, I think that's right. And there are some high points there that we may try try to get up upon that we'll have a good, I'm going to be there a couple of days early to sort of do some scoping and, you know, make sure you don't wait this long for this experience and not, you know, uh, do some prep in advance, which is something that, that people did for this, this eclipse you describe in your book too. I was really taken by um, how much sort of practice went into this, not just like planning, but actual practice of people doing these sort of, you know, um, almost like fire drills, trying to, to see how it was going to all go, right? <laughs> Oh, absolutely, because, you know, they were, they had a lot of things that they wanted to do in three minutes, and they brought all this equipment with them. So they they basically figured out to the second uh, 
what how they would spend totality. You know, they would they would expose a glass slide for 15 seconds and then it would take five seconds to take it out and put a new one in and then they'd expose the next one for 30 seconds and, or someone else would be using a spectroscope. And uh, so they, they did these practice drills um, and uh, and that really, that was necessary. And I actually think that this is a, a point, this is something you haven't asked me about, but <laughs> a lot of people ask me about photographing the total eclipse. And my, you know, my best advice is don't do it because, you know, it's just like these scientists back in 1878, where you've got so much to pay attention to and so little time. They were, you know, first of all, you're just going to be spending so much time trying to get your exposure right and getting it pointed right. You're going to miss out on the experience and you may end up messing up anyway. So my advice is, for, and, and, and the scientists in 1878 would admit to each other how they so wished they didn't have to actually work with the equipment during the eclipse because they would rather just soak up the the beauty of it. So so my advice, certainly to first-time eclipse chasers, is just enjoy it. it there are going to be plenty of people with fancy equipment, including at NASA, who are going to have spectacular pictures of the eclipse, and they'll put them up online, take advantage of what, take advantage of what they're doing, and just enjoy the, the show. Sounds good. Sounds good. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I know you are. So now the only thing left is to uh, hope for clear skies, right? Yeah, I hope we're going to have, for the first time ever, clear skies from coast to coast. Um, And uh, at least I'm guessing that would be the first time ever, but certainly a rare event. Uh, And from Oregon to South Carolina, I hope it'll just be perfect, perfect skies. Likewise, likewise. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure talking with you. Christy, it was my pleasure. And I hope that anyone who doesn't yet have plans to go see the eclipse and thinks it's too late, I would say it's never too late until it's over. And uh, if there were ever something that was worth uh, rearranging your life, driving all night, sleeping in your car, although someplace safe, uh, maybe spending more on a hotel room than you ever thought you'd spend. This mm-hmm. this is that moment. That was Christy Ashwanden talking to David Barron, the author of the book American Eclipse. That's it for this episode. If you have liked what you heard, please do go to the iTunes store and leave a review or rating of the What's the Point feed where the Sparks episode appeared. Our editor for this episode was Katie Ferguson. Thanks for listening.